Welcome to Get Rich Without Being a Bitch. This is the place to hear real and raw conversations about what it takes for female entrepreneurs to achieve financial success and live a rich life. I'm Vanessa Shaw, author of The Million Dollar Question and your hostess for this podcast. Welcome, welcome, Courtney Dyer, to the Get Rich Without Being a Bitch podcast. I am I'm so excited. Thank you. Me too. It's like we were you know, just talking about podcasting and conversations and, you know, we're both very passionate about helping women. Um, Maya is on the, you know, scaling up, growing and scaling businesses to create some of that financial security. Yours is going to be more around their building their futures and taking care of that and looking at investments. So just by way of an introduction, so our listeners know who we've got on the podcast today, Courtney Dyer is a licensed financial expert with over 12 years in the finance industry. She's helped thousands of individuals build their wealth and achieve their money goals. Love that. After seeing individuals make the same money mistakes, regardless of their economic or educational background, Courtney decided to take her experience and knowledge and create the Financially Free Journey podcast. The Financially Free Journey aims to dispel the seemingly complex topic of personal finances, money management, debt, savings, investing, and retirement. So, Courtney, we've got a lot to cover today. And, you know, the first thing I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say is, um, you know, again, it's kind of that mindset. When I grew up, you and I slightly from a different generation, I'm not going to age myself too much. But, you know, when I grew up, um, anybody that was in finance, many of the people that were in finance were actually predominantly men for a start. Yes. And, um, you know, they kind of were older and stuffier and not as approachable. And so even, you know, seeing you opposite me today on the podcast is already just going, okay, there's just another way that women can really be approaching their finances. And it doesn't have to be this kind of stuffy, heavy, unapproachable topic. But I'm curious. 100%. Yeah. What, and just like diving in there. I mean, what, A, why do you do what, what you do? I mean, let's, let's kind of dive in there. Like why this journey for you? Let's go into the origin story of Courtney Dyer. No, you know what? I have always been like a self-proclaimed nerd when it comes to money, but I have a very vivid experience when I was seven years old, and this really changed my trajectory on the way that I thought about money. My family was planning a vacation to go to Hawaii, right? It's, that's an expensive vacation. You're taking five kids. Like, yep. It's not like we were millionaires. And my parents said, look, you guys have to save. You've got to work. You've got to save and have money to save, to, to go and spend Well, when we go over there. So I like, as a seven-year-old, like worked and worked, quote unquote, like got, you know, like allowance from my grandma. And I saved up $110, okay? Which was like a lot of money for a seven-year-old. That's a lot of So money we get over to Hawaii. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like, I'm making a lot of money, baby. So we yes. get over to Hawaii and we go to this swap meet and my sister blows all of her money literally in, I'm not kidding you, Vanessa, the first 10 minutes. And I'm like walking around. I bought one item for $7. Okay. And I didn't feel good about it. We went back to the hotel room and I started crying. My mom's like, what's wrong? Like, you have to take me back to the swap meet. I have to return this. I want my $7 more than I want this trinket from Hawaii. And she's like, are you serious? And that's just how I, how I have been. And I went to college for 
you know, finance and accounting, business management. And once I started helping people with their finances, I realized that there is a true need for financial education for it to be simplistic and approachable, specifically for women, because it seems to be, and it absolutely is a predominantly male industry. You know, for example, as a financial advisor that's licensed, there's only 16% of all financial advisors, like all of them are female. So I mean, talk about a predominantly male industry. So women need more representation and they need to feel heard and to be able to have a seat at the table. And that is my passion and my mission. I love that. You know, I had no idea that it was 16%. I mean, I knew that there were a lot more female financial advisors these days. And yet, wow, those statistics are shockingly bad, yeah. right? And, and again, yes. we have a, I think we have a different approach as well. I mean, you know, again, just different skills that we're bringing to the table. But something that's curious, if I, I just want to go back to that lovely story, the origin story, because there's, you know, we've all got one. What I'm hearing there, though, is that you and your sister actually have a very different relationship with money. Yes, very different. And, you know, when you think about your money script, right, and this is just a a philosophy that was developed by uh, a scientist that went out and gathered a bunch of information. And he found that there was four different money scripts that people are programmed with. uh, And really your money script that you believe for the rest of your life, you're really programmed with or two, you know, seven, eight years old. So your belief around money, how you feel about money, the way that you interact with money in your life is developed during those years. And so it's interesting, even within the same household, uh, but your experience is so different. So your money script can be completely different than your siblings or your parents um, or your children, because your experience really differentiates that and how you form that relationship. Yeah, as I said, and that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, let's face it, you were young, right? Same, you know, same family, same household and everything. And yet, right, a very different, as you say, money, money script relationship with money. And I'm curious, is that still visible today between you and your Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Danielle, when you listen to this, you know, it's true. She loves to spend her money. She's gotten, she's gotten a lot better, but I... You know, some people are just naturally more spenders. Like my husband, when I met him, he was like, well, you make money to spend it. I don't want to die with money. And I, I, on the other hand, I'm like, we need to leave like a legacy for our children. And so it's so funny because people are programmed and you really, in order to break that cycle, you have to dig into your subconscious because really only 10% of our conscious mind interacts with us daily, right? 90% is subconscious and our money beliefs are they're They're in that 90% sub subconscious, you know, belief of around money. So it's interesting because you have to work very hard to break that cycle. Yeah, you do. And I think that's, you know, again, it's, it's saying it, it, it is work, right? Of course, it's like everything. Awareness is the first step. We don't have to label ourselves, you know, just, oh, I'm a spender, I'm a saver, you know, whatever those labels could be. But I know for myself, spending was the thing, you know, it was like money would come in and it would go out really quickly. And kind of I would enjoy it at the time, but then feel guilty and embarrassed and have some shame around it, right? So it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't healthy spending patterns. And I've had to really retrain myself. I think that, you know, I'm sure you see this with your clients as a balance, right? 
that, Absolutely. that the purchases that I make now are so much more thoughtful and you know that, that you know if they're bringing me joy and they continue to do so then they're really great but e- and equally so I mean say but and equally so for me you know building that financial security for myself is just as exciting as you know some of those purchases so I've really come to oh, the place right where there's that balance and yes, yes and it and it's taken some work. So I am curious. I mean, kind of what are some of you know, somebody's listening today, especially a woman, and you know, she is starting to think about her own investment journey. Like, where does one even start? What are some of those initial uh, you know what? This is one of those topics. It's like sex, politics, and money, specifically investing. It's like bad juju to talk about. And so a lot of us find ourselves, how do I even get started? And you go and you, you pop into Google, how to start investing. And there's just a ton of information that can be very conflicting, but yeah. it's so much simpler than we want to make it to be, right? We want it to be more complex because then it's like easier to kind of avoid it when it's like, oh, but it's really hard. So I'll just wait till later. The truth is, Vanessa, and for the listeners, is that investing is so incredibly simple when you think about it this way you have to first identify what is your time horizon that's a term that we use in the finance industry but really what it means is how long do you want your money invested for until you're planning on using it are you investing money to be able to reach a big down payment on a house and that's about five years out are you investing for retirement and that's 20 30 years away So you need to first identify, do you have a short-term or a long-term time horizon? And anything 10 years plus is long-term time horizon. And then from there, you need to ask yourself about your risk tolerance, another word that we use. But all that means is like, what's your appetite for exposure to volatility in the market? So with the current market that we're in, you know, we've been running what's called a bull market, but that means just we're gaining momentum, right? Prices are increasing, people are making money. And we've been running a bull market for a long time. And we're at the end of that two-year cycle. So when you look back historically over the past hundred years, this is cyclical and this happens. It it is like clockwork, right? So we're going into the second half of the second year of a bull run. And that means it's super volatile. So every day you log in, the S&P is up at a record high and then it closes at the lowest it's ever closed. This this happens. So you have to understand your risk tolerance. So when you see that Mm -hmm. happening, and let's say you had $10,000 invested and you saw now it's worth 6,000, would you immediately want to sell off and have cash? Or would you be like, you know what, I'm going to let it gain. And this is a really great time to buy in more because it's at a discount. So you have to understand that about yourself before hopping into an investment plan. That's pretty easy to identify. And then from there, it's simply opening up a brokerage account uh, before the listeners go and they hop on to Fidelity or, or Schwab and open up an investment account, I want them to also think about tax-advantaged investment accounts. So if you have an employer and you have something like a 401k, a 403b available to you, which has tax advantages, that would be something to really look into maxing out prior to then taking money that's after tax and investing it into a brokerage account. So that would be the first steps is Mm. what's your time horizon? What's your risk tolerance? 
Make sure you're maxing out your retirement accounts that are tax advantaged, meaning you contribute the money prior to paying taxes. And so then that way you're saving money on your taxes and you're also investing funds. So it's like a double whammy. And then from there, exactly. yes, exactly. I mean, it's like, that's fantastic, especially depending on what tax bracket you're in, that may be really beneficial for you and your family to have that break in, in your taxable income. And then from there, open up an investment account. And then you need to start doing what's called dollar cost averaging into the market. So, you know, if you're like, Hey, I can invest a hundred dollars a month, 20 bucks a month, whatever it is, you take it. And every month you buy into the same fund at the same time, because what you're going to do is you're going to mitigate your risk of buying in when it's super high and then be losing value because you're going to buy in when it's high. You're going to buy in when it's low, but it will all average out. I love that. That's such great advice. And actually, you know, again, again, for our listeners, because this was a mindset as well that I had, and you just kind of, you know, clarified something there for me is when it came to investing, I was like, well, unless, you know, investing for me meant hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. right. I that's what most people assume. You have right? to be rich to start investing. Exactly. Yep. And that's exactly it. And by the way, I also came again, when we look back at family and fa- family paradigms, um, we did not have a family of investors either. So in fact, very good with money and some really, really good practical habits and savings. So really good stuff there and buying property and things. But investing was that was absolutely for other people. So it, for me, was a mystery. And then coupled with that was, oh, my gosh, well, it's only worth, you know. And it's, and by the way, you do hear that with other financial advisors as well. Oh, we only work with high net worth individuals. They, yes. You know, they've got to have a minimum, you know, half a million, a million to invest. And for the average, you know, let's say not even the average, but, you know, the woman that's wanting to get ahead. I mean, that can just seem like a mountain that's impossible to climb. Right. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you there is, you know, like how much do you actually need to get started or and and or are there some things that need to be taken care of prior to investing? Yeah, no, I love that because that's really important, too, is, of course, before you start investing, I mean, let's go through the basics of making sure you have instead of saying budget, because that sometimes it's like a negative connotation, I like to say a spending plan in place, right? Because you should enjoy your money and your money should support short-term happiness, goals, needs, and long-term, right? So there's got to be a balance there. Make sure you have a spending plan in place. And then if you have any high interest debt, you want to make sure that's paid off first because it's really looking at like, where can your money do the most work for you? And what I mean by high interest debt is if you have something like, a payday loan, you have a title loan out on your car, you have a line of credit, a credit card. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, your car, because most cars are, you know, three to 4%. Right now, it's even lower because, you know, of the prime rate being so incredibly low. And I'm not talking about your home, because again, your home is an appreciating asset. And I know this is something that can be a controversial topic, but you know, I don't necessarily believe that having a paid off mortgage is the answer for everyone. That's why it's important to know your own situation, Mm. if that works for you, but making sure you have eliminated all high interest debt um, prior to investing is really critical because it's going to do you more good by eliminating that than investing into the market. 
Yeah. And it's, it's true. I mean, and I think even sometimes some of the credit card companies as well are becoming more trans- transparent, right, in their, in, let's say, in their interest rate and the impact of the interest rate, um, whereby, you know, if something's not paid off, it'll actually even say this will take you X amount of months or years, right, if yeah. you're doing the minimum payment. And I see that, you know, it's a place where a lot of people have got so comfortable with carrying credit card debt. I, again, I don't believe it's a bad tool. I think debt used responsibly can be a really good thing, particularly in business. We, you know, you know, to, to be able to get ahead. Yet, as you say, it doesn't make sense mathematically if there's really high interest credit cards sitting out there to actually be putting money in investment funds that's not going to be getting the same the same return or less exactly yeah yeah but I love that because it it makes it uh, this subject more practical right and more approachable what are some of the I mean in terms of you know starting to think about building financial security what are some of those building blocks that women you know really need to be stepping through so when you think about women and finances in particular, and this will probably resonate with a lot of the listeners as well, because you have a predominantly female listenership. And so in our society, generally speaking, right, this isn't for everybody, but generally speaking, taking care of the finances and investing and planning for retirement is viewed more predominantly as the man's role, when in fact, it's not gender specific, right? And and think about it this way. If in your relationship, you are putting the weight on your husband's shoulders to make sure that he has the best plan in place and he's taking care of all of that on his own, that's a lot. Because just because you're a man or a husband doesn't mean that you're a financial guru, right? So it's like making sure that we're sharing that responsibility because we live in a day and age where we also have information at our fingertips. So if you have a want and a desire to learn more and to be proficient at almost anything, I mean, you can do that, right? So I think it's really critical for women to understand that it's not something to defer to your partner. Um, It's definitely something that we all need to make sure that we are sitting at the table and we are, you know, taking care of that together with our partner. Um, Or if you're single, making sure that this is something that you're looking at on a really consistent basis. Because something that I see from clients is when they've been off track, right, is you know, I'll ask them things like, well, how much are your bills per month? And they're like, uh, I'm not really, really sure. Right. Mm. Uh, how much do you spend per month? Like on groceries or gas? And they can't say. And so one of the very first steps of taking control of your finances, uh, particularly as a woman, uh, is to make sure that you understand your numbers. So you got to yeah. make sure that you sit down, you deep dive your own numbers and it can be so hard, Vanessa. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I know I sure have, right? It's not like I've always been perfect. And you like looking at your own spending pattern, it's kind of like, you know, you don't want to track your calories when you know you've gone way over because you're like, totally. I don't want to even know, right? Totally. So yeah, no. Look at it. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to know your numbers because if you don't know point A, then there's no way you're going to get to point B, right? Because Mm -hmm. you don't even know your starting point. Um, And that's a a really hard step for a lot of people to do is they'll say, well, I'll just ballpark it. I'll just say, well, I think I spend about 
$500 a month on groceries. But when in reality, once you do a deep dive and you do a spending diagnosis on, on, you know, your bank account, you realize, oh my gosh, no, I'm spending $1,100. I mean, it's usually that big of a discrepancy. Um, and this is for anybody that feels like, you know what? I always create a budget, but I never seem to be able to stick to it. It's always like I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul at the end of the month or before my next paycheck. This is a, a something you really need to pay attention to. Go into your checking account or a credit card, wherever you spend money from, print out six months of bank, bank statements and put put your spending into categories. So there's, you know, your, your utilities, your housing, medical, um, entertainment, you know, do your basic categories and come up with an average of how much you're truly spending. And you'll be able to see pretty quickly a fair amount of money that you can save by slashing in certain categories because you've now identified some unnecessary spending that you may even just be doing subconsciously. Absolutely. And I love that, you know, and again, you know, obviously we have, you know, we have an audience of business owners as well. Right. And it's the same thing in business. We need to know, like if we want to have a profitable, healthy business, we need to know, you know, what our expenses are and constantly be looking at them because we see that on the business side, we've, you know, we've got lots of moving parts and all of a sudden it's like, there's a $50 a month subscription for something that we haven't used for six months. Right. Right. And those things, you know, they disappear, they disappear quickly. Um, sometimes we're better off on the business side, we're looking at it, but on the personal side, we're not. Absolutely. Right? And that was a place for me as well to start to know that like, I've got to bridge both of those. And I do like what you say is that, and by the way, this may be this, I, I'll own it, that's my own personal experience. But this for me has been the difference between speaking with uh, female advisors versus male is that male advisors have often been very matter of fact. And it's just this kind of logical, we're just, we're just gonna look at the numbers and we're gonna put together a budget and we're gonna see what you're spending. And like taking, they're not taking into consideration the emotional aspect of numbers. Because as you said, it's a little bit like calories or something else, right? When we, you know, the numbers tell us the truth of what's really going on. The same as, you know, the calories or the, the number on the scale, right? And let's face it, there's times when we just don't want to see that because now we've got to face the truth and there's an emotional hurdle to get through. Yeah. And what I've found is that a lot of women that are dealing with this, they're kind of like, I get it. These things are tough. This isn't easy. But like, the good news is, is when we've got a starting point, there's no judgment around kind of what's right. been happening to date. And by the way, most of us as women will probably judge ourselves enough as it is, right? Yes. <laughs> right. There's, there's no judgment, but we just need to have a starting point. Um, and I actually was just looking through some of my numbers this morning before, you know, I was just going through bank accounts and it's a Friday. It tends to be a, a day when I'm looking at things. And we've been going out to eat a lot recently. You know, we weren't doing that with COVID. So, you know, the numbers were kind of going, oh, like, oh, this is good because we weren't spending and I was spending a lot more time cooking. I said to myself, oh, you know, when things open up, there's no way we'll go back to eating out the way we were before. Well, guess what? (laughs) All of a sudden that convenience is creeping back in again. But I love to look at those, those categories because when I see, I was like, oh, there's a lot going out in restaurants right now. You know, yeah. talk about that. You know, I know our big categories where we can make a lot of changes uh, is around food, you know, eating out and groceries. 
Oh, yeah. and that's for most people, right? And I love what you reiterated, Vanessa, is that spending is absolutely emotional. And if we just think with our conscious mind and say, okay, well, I'm going to cut it in half, you're going to set yourself up for failure. So yeah. I think it's really important to give yourself some grace and say, okay, I'm first of all, I'm looking at my finances, I'm identifying the numbers, and it may not be exactly what you wanted, but you're going to make the change. And and setting yourself up to be able to celebrate small wins is really critical. So looking at your spending and saying, eating out, for example, this is a spending trigger for you. And you've identified that this is a spending trigger. So thinking a little deeper, like, okay, when is it that I, I feel the impulse to eat out versus cooking at home and give yourself an allowance to eat out, right? Like it's something you guys enjoy. It's something you love, right? This is just an example, but give yourself an allowance. And then, you know, that way, when you have that trigger, you know, okay, no, it's not always bad. I don't have to have negative emotions around this every time. It's just pulling it back a little bit, right? Cause like, like I said earlier, we need to enjoy our money now and in the future. And you absolutely can do both. Yeah, I love that. And and, and again, that was back to my mindset, you know, before it was always this either or, you know, it's like, we're going to have a budget, which means those things are off. It's like, I love the fact that you say spending plans. I'm like, okay, that has yes. a feel. One of the things that I've done, and I, I still do it periodically now, but it was again, when I was really wanting to get my spending, you know, into a much healthier place was looking back at my expenses and then asking myself how I was feeling about them now. Right. Yes. Again, going into the emotional. And by the way, that's just the, even the same with restaurants. Um, there was one bill on there that actually was quite, quite high for a for a weekend lunch because it was with a girlfriend and it involved some lovely champagne and everything. Of course. Right. And I saw that and it was me treating her, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a long time and it was a birthday. But I looked at that and immediately I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, we just had such an amazing day. You know, the emotion was like, the number was higher than it would normally be. Yet the emotion was like, that was so good. You know, we had all these amazing conversations and a wonderful experience. Whereas, you know, I can look at something else and go, hang on a minute. Like, I barely remember that. Um, You know, I know for me, honestly, if we look at triggers around that, for me, it's just, I've got tired you know? Yeah. And so it's, I've defaulted to, well, we're going to eat out because it's easy and we've got a ton of restaurants, but often the pleasure isn't there because I'm tired. Right. And then I can right. see that looking back on my expenses later. Well, what you reminded me too is of the connection between our finances and our happiness. And we typically put a lot of emphasis on our happiness based off of our financial stature or, you know, if we're at the economic standing that we want for ourselves, when in reality, our happiness isn't necessarily tied to our finances. Uh, There's been lots of studies that show that uh, once your basic needs are met, right, like you've got shelter, you've got food, uh, any income from 50,000 to 5 million a year the happiness level stays the same. And so when you think about our income doesn't directly drive our happiness, but our spending can. So once you've got the tool and that's all money is, it's a tool, it's a medium for us to be able to have experiences in our life. You know, 
are you spending to support your happiness? So I love the example that you gave going out with a girlfriend you haven't seen forever. It was a birthday. You guys had champagne. It's a memory that you, you know, looking back at it, you're like, no, that was great. I enjoyed that. That transaction supported your happiness. But when you look in your finances and you see that you forgot to unsubscribe to, you know, to, uh, you know, like to Netflix and Hulu, and you had several Apple purchases come through that you didn't even remember you had, that doesn't support your happiness. So not all spending is bad, but take a second to look at it and say, does this support my happiness and what I'm really trying to achieve? And if it does kind of like Marie Kondo, right? Like if it brings you happiness in your life, then have it. If not, let's thank it for its service and kick it to the curb. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, let's, as you say, if it doesn't spark joy, we're out yes. here. But if it sparks joy, it's good. We can Marie Kondo the finances. Exactly. I love but when it, you know, and again, a lot of, especially in my world, uh, the world of entrepreneurship, uh, small business ownership, there's a lot of talk around financial freedom. It's actually the, when the, the question, when I say to my audience, you know, what's the reason that you went into business for? The number one reason is, freedom and when we dig into it it's often about fine you know there's lots of different levels of that but financial freedom comes into play as well yet the reality and you and I both know this and certainly when we look at the state of you know most people's finances is most people are anything but financially free they've got a lot of worry a lot of stress a lot of guilt um you know preoccupation so like how do you define that term? Because it's banded around so like, you know, carelessly in a way, right? Right. It's got no feet to it. It's like, you know, of course, when I'm working with my clients, I'm like, like, what do we mean by that? Let's get specific. What do we really, really mean? And like, what would an amount be that would actually mean that you are feeling free financially? Like, let's put some numbers. But I'm curious to your take on that. So for me, it's important to remember that there's seven levels of financial freedom, but the level that most people are referring to is complete financial freedom, right? Not, not that we have our basic needs met, not that we're not living paycheck to paycheck. Those are lower levels of financial freedom. What most people are referring to is where your passive income completely replaces your earned income. So Earned income is money that you make by exchanging your time for money, right? So you have to actively be involved to make the money. That's earned income. Mm. Passive income is where your money is making you money, right? It's like on autopilot. So when we're referring to financial freedom as a whole, most people in their mind, even though they can't articulate it, are referring to having enough passive income or income sources that replace their earned income, therefore they have time freedom. And that's really, when I think about financial freedom, what's the purpose? It's not for me to buy a Lambo and to, you know, have a yacht, you know, no. Financial freedom for me, because what supports my happiness is spending time with my three small children, being able to travel if I want, have experiences that bring me happiness. And in order to have that, I need to have time freedom. So in order to have time freedom, I need to have enough passive income to be able to replace my earned income so I can become what I like to call it work optional. Because not Mm. everybody wants to quit work, right? A lot of people have passion around their business or around, you know, their career field. And that's fantastic. If you love it, you continue to do it. 
but put yourself in a position to know that it's an option. You're not forced. It's not like indentured servitude until you're, you know, 70 years old because you've racked up so much debt and you've had lifestyle inflation to the point of where you don't even have the option to, you know, maybe step back part-time or to go to consultant work or whatever it looks like for you. Mm. So that's how I define financial freedom. And I like to ask people, you know, if you didn't, if, if paying your bills was no issue to you, how would you envision spending your days? Like, what would you do with your time? And a lot of people say travel, of course, like traveling is super popular, but a lot of people say, I'd love to work on this passion that I have never had time for, or I've always wanted to learn how to play the guitar, you know, whatever it is for you. And so then that's, that's how you can figure out what your definition is, because it's going to be different for everyone. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, you're talking about, again, I love that your term work optional. One of the things I've always said is, you know, money gives us choices, right? Yes. And it's choices that give us the sense of freedom, right? There's such a difference between, oh my gosh, I have to keep working. I have to put in the hours as opposed to, I want to, or I want to do, you know, I want to do less of this. Yes, absolutely love that. Uh, I just want to switch gears a little bit because there's a like a really hot topic of divorce and money. My parents, by the way, they I remember them going through the divorce. Probably I was about twelve, and it's a lot of where my figure or you know my origin stories came from. Because prior to that, I remember a lot of the fights that, you know, led to that divorce because those things were over a period of years. So many of the fights were over money. Um, yeah. And in my particular household, it was interesting how you were saying that, you know, we often defer to the, you know, men, if we're in a you know male-female uh, relationship. In fact, my father was the spender and the careless one, but he was the one that earned the money. My mother was trying to manage it because she had four kids, but it was also creating a t- an awful lot of stress because she was oh, obviously yeah. right, really concerned about how is she going to feed like and you know feed and look after four kids right right so what are some of those things that you see you know we know that you know is it one in two marriages ends in divorce and number one reason is often around finances as well one of the yes. top reasons you know what do you see there and again what are some of the things that people can do to frankly mitigate those risks and not head down that rather predictable path yeah yeah no i it is such an important topic to talk about i think like i mentioned earlier it's one of these topics and even with your spouse or significant other anybody that you were entangled financially with, right? So this isn't just for, you know, your married couples. This can be a significant other where you've lived together for a while and your finances are commingled. Um, this could be a, uh, you know, someone who's maybe moved back home and they're having financial support from their parents while they start their business, right? Whatever the situation is, if you're financially entangled or enmeshed with another person, it's really critical to be able to have open and consistent communication around your finances. And as you said, Vanessa, the number one reason for divorce is money. And when you deep dive into those statistics, it all comes back to communication, right? So there's conflicting goals. And you gave the example of your mom and dad. Your mom had a goal of security, 
of uh, safety, right? Being able to provide for her kids and know that she's going to have enough to take care of what needs to happen during the month when maybe your dad's goals was, um, you know, instant gratification or he had hobbies that were expensive. So because it was conflicting and there wasn't open communication that was allowed within the relationship, uh, just for example, and this happens a lot, it, it creates a lot of resentment uh, and, you know, issues that really do bubble up into divorce. And so when I think about you know, how can you mitigate this? If you don't have this issue yet, maybe you're not married yet, but you're like, ah, I don't want to ever want to deal with that. Or you are married and maybe you don't have any financial issues with your spouse, but it could potentially happen. Or you're in the thrusts of it. Like you guys are running mm-hmm. about all the time. This advice is for you. There's several different ways to handle money together as a couple. It's not going to be the same for everybody, but over 80% of couples have joint finances where they just put all their money into one bucket and then everything gets paid out of that bucket, right? So that, that could, that's one way of handling it. There's another way of percentages. So uh, not all spouses make the same exact amount. In mm. fact, most don't. Usually there's a primary and then a secondary breadwinner. And there's a way of pay, paying percentages according to how much money you make, right? So that way it's fair and equitable for each person in, in the relationship. And then one person doesn't feel like it's reliant more on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second way is to have completely separate finances, which is about 16% of all married couples have completely separate finances. And then they each contribute 50-50 to the mutual bills and expenses of their household. So dependent on you know what category you fall into, the advice that I give you will be a little bit different, but the majority of the listeners will fall into the bucket of everything just goes into the same account, right? We Mm -hmm. pay all our bills together. All of our spending is together. First thing is to let's go back to the advice that I gave earlier, which is together as a couple, you have to go through and do a spending diagnosis and you have to be able to identify what spending is taking place and what spending is really important to each person in the relationship. Uh, Because like, For you, it may not be important to have the country club membership, but for your husband, it may be because he loves golfing and that's his Mm. relief and makes him happy. So you need to be able to identify the the spending that's taking place and what you both agree upon to continue, right? From there, something to be able to mitigate a lot of fights around money is to make sure that you have an account that is just for your bills, okay? And Mm -hmm. there's no debit cards attached to this account. All of your bills are on auto pay. Okay. Then you each have your own spending account with a debit card attached to it. You both have agreed upon after doing your spending diagnosis, the amount of money that you guys are both allotted to spend. And you both have your own separate spending account. Some people say, well, that could create trust issues. If that's the situation for you, maybe you guys both have access online. I mean, whatever the case is, you you'll work that out individually. The reason why I highly suggest this is because the majority of money fights happens because there was spending that takes place that you didn't agree on, right? That's yeah. like number one. Yeah. Number two is like overdrafting the account and now our mortgage can't be paid or like now yeah. I'm not going to be able to pay the light bill. This is going to avoid and mitigate a lot of the common fights that happen around money. 
that are totally avoidable. So that's my number one piece of advice. If you're in a relationship. That's great advice. So cool. Yeah. You've honestly, you've covered, I do, I do I want to unpack that a little bit because you really, and listen, I'm, you know, I've been with my, my husband for 27 years. I mean, we've just been married 26 years and lived in multiple countries together. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime, right? Yeah. And gone through lots of different phases. And my, you know, my relationship with money and being able to generate it and everything has completely changed as well in that period. I mean, I was the stay-at-home mum before. He was looking after the finances. He was providing. And then I set up my own business and, you know, everything, everything's changed. I mean, he actually now works in, in the business as well. So that's fantastic. Right? A lot of change there. But I love that, you know, some of those practical things, as you said, the majority are going to have those commingled accounts. That's certainly the way our finances have been. Um, interesting tip. This is the Vanessa unofficial tip for the ladies. <laughs> I, I definitely got my separate accounts uh, as well. Again, through business, of course, business isn't commingled with personal. But there was that to your point, like there are things that are important to me that I don't want to have to justify. Um, right. And it's kind of my money. And I, you know, I get to choose to spend it in the way that I want to. And there are things that are important to Robert um, and he gets to spend those as well. And like we're not in each other's businesses. Right. But exactly. And that makes it fun. I was kind of giggling as you said that. because I was like, yeah, there's times when, you know, I am. I've become, become quite a good shopper online with COVID. Oh, and yeah. Right. I know. I know a few of the brands as well. So it's like, I don't want to know that, you know, I, I don't want him to know that I've just gone and added another like top to my collection. Or something. Yeah. And, you know, he'll see it when it's on, but we don't have to have a conversation around it, you know. Right. Um, but right. I also, you don't have to call him up and say, Robert, what did you just buy at, you know, exactly. at whatever place he's at. Right. Because we That's going to throw us out of whack for our spending plan for the month, you know, and I, I'm guilty of doing that to my husband, like bless his heart, because I'm the ultimate Scrooge, as I told you earlier, starting at seven years old. And he is a spender. You know, he, he said, we, we spent, we make money to spend it. Like, I don't want to mm. die with money. So we're, we couldn't be more polar opposite. And there's at the beginning of our marriage, he went to the grocery store and I had it where I got notifications on my phone and he spent like $27 and I called him and I'm like, what did you just buy? And he's like, I'm literally in the parking lot holding the grocery bags and you're already calling me and it made him so mad <laughs> you're like okay like because again it created an unnecessary conversation that was kind of heated where it's like you know what if we had it allotted where it's like you've got your spending I've got mine but you know something that I do want to make sure that I reiterate is a lot of pushback that I get with this is the trust factor well then there could be you know something that could happen but you know fidelity, you know, infidelity or whatever, mm. you know, you guys can both have access to the accounts. So for example, they can both be joint accounts. So that way when you log in online, you can see it, but you only have a debit card to one of them, right? Like you don't have a debit card. Yes. To so then that way it, you're not having, you know, if that's an issue in your relationship and that may be a mute point for, for other people. So I just wanted to reiterate that because that's the number one pushback I get with that. It's interesting, you know, it, interesting as well. And again, not, not to go down that rabbit hole, but as I say, if that is the pushback in this trust, it's like, oh, there probably are some other conversations that need to take yeah. place here that are beyond finances, right? Exactly. Like, like, you know, we can't put it all in that finance bucket. But yes. no, I think it's just, as I say, super, you know, super practical 
And, you know, again, my husband and I have actually, re- there, w- there was a time when, you know, we've gone through periods of having a lot of debt. Um, we've gone through periods where there was a, a purchase, a house purchase that he had made and, you know, the bottom fell out of the market and we were left with, you know, kind of crippling payments. So we've, you know, we've gone through that. We've gone through different phases of business. And there was a time when conversations were a lot more uncomfortable, right, around finances. Um, But I I can say to our listeners today, it's like we had to work through those things, right? Again, it's a muscle. Um, And I know that, you know, my story around it was kind of like, no, let's just avoid it. You know, like, like, let me have a head in the sand approach because that feels short term more comfortable than having that courageous conversation. Uh, Fortunately, I knew that I had to build that muscle and actually it can become fun. You know, we... Just recently, recently, probably about a year ago now, you know, we we set up a project to do a house renovation together. And that's obviously there's a lot of finance that goes with that type of, you know, a home renovation. Yet it was really fun, really fun to be able to come together and have those conversations and both agree on the budget and what was important. Um, Yes. And again, being a, you know, a, a woman that was able to really express what was important to me, I got my dream kitchen, right? And yay! And that was something that he said, no, I know that that's really important to you. But again, that's about communication, Absolutely. right? Communication and respect and wanting to enjoy those things. So, And what, one thing to piggyback off of the communication, Vanessa, is Uh, to make sure that what I personally do and I advise for anyone to do is to have a check-in. It doesn't have to be an in-depth analysis every time, but every payday. So if you, if you both have, you know, if you're both working and have income and you get paid every Friday, have the conversation every Friday, if it's once a month, bi-weekly, whatever the situation is, do a quick check-in and say, okay, this was the plan at the beginning of the month. Where are we at? Do we need to make any adjustments? And uh, before it's too late, right? Because then you can celebrate that success together before, you know, you've said, oh, well, we, we went way over. Okay, this next month, we're going to do better. And there's no better analogy than dieting, right? Because it's That's like- That's just what I was thinking of, right? Yes, you know, those calories quickly. Yep. Yes. Yep, exactly. So just wanted to say that the consistency is key. And then the accountability together is key. And agreeing on it beforehand saying, okay, look, we both agree on this. And we're going to check in every payday. And if one of us is going out of whack, we're going to make adjustments to make sure that we stay within this plan that we've created. Um, so then that way it doesn't create contention. Uh, such great advice. Courtney, thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, again, it is super practical, great advice for women out, out there as well. We need to see more women, A, taking control of their finances, building financial security as well, something I'm really passionate about. And you say like building those portfolios of investment as well, so that they've got their money, you know, doing some of the heavy lifting for them and they don't need to be working so hard. Absolutely. Uh, I'll make sure we get, you know, in the show notes afterwards. But if, you know, if there are women that would love to learn more about your approach with finance, finance and investments, what is the best way that they can get in contact with you? Yeah, they can get in contact with me on Instagram. It's at financially free journey. 
uh, TikTok uh, at Financially Free Journey. And then also my website is financiallyfreejourney.com. And I have all of my episodes transcribed into blogs. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, I also have my podcast, Financially Free Journey. So I would love for them to go and subscribe and listen. And, you know, the more that they work that muscle, uh, the, the better they're going to be by listening to your podcast and other financial podcasts. So that way they can, you know, achieve those money goals. Fantastic. Thank you so much and keep doing the amazing work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much for having me on.